of course, we've all heard that water is life, right? In fact, I, before the show, I saw you were even wearing a Water is Life t-shirt. I just love that. And it's so true. There's so much truth to that. You know, as magical as life is, that's how magical water is. As mysterious as life is, that's how mysterious water is. You know, it's as much potential as life has, that's how much potential water has. Um, but in some ways, it's almost more accurate to say that living water is life. And there is a very, very big distinction between living water and dead water because water itself is a physical body, right? She's the, she's the body of life force. She's the body of consciousness. And just like our bodies, she can be healthy or sick, alive or dead. And the vast majority of water that we ever come into contact with is dead water. Water, water. Peace, everyone. Welcome to Masters of Ceremony. I'm your host, Andrew Ascari-Poor, and I'm so pleased to be back in the flow of producing and releasing these podcasts because I'm remembering again just how much I love doing this and how passionate I am about having these conversations with people I, I really admire and respect and having them documented to be able to be shared with all of you. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been patient with me releasing and producing more of these episodes. I want to reiterate that I'm doing it all by myself <laughs> and it's been quite the journey, but I feel like I've gotten into a good flow of learning how to streamline the whole process and do it in a way in which it's not exhausting to me and that I can actually truly receive the nourishment that I uh, aim to receive through having these conversations with people I really respect. So today's podcast is just that for me. Wow, I, I truly think that it may be the most important podcast I have recorded and released. And that is because I'm speaking with an incredible woman, an incredible researcher and educator on the most important topic of sacred water. So I know some people may say, water? Uh, what's so important about that? And to me, that would be um, almost a blasphemous thing to even express because I have come to learn through my lived experience, through the teachings of my elders, through uh, ceremony and ritual and prayer that Water is the most essential source of life that is not only a resource that we use to nourish ourselves or to live, but is a substance that is so magical, so powerful, so sacred, has the potential to solve so many of the issues that we face today that for me to have somebody like Isabel Friend come on and educate all of us with her articulate speech about the science of water, the spiritual side of it, the uh, technological and historical side of it. Um, I think it's just such a blessing to be able to share this information with you all. And Isabel is amazing. I know you all are going to fall in love with her. I first heard her, I believe, on the Medicine Stories podcast with Amber Magnolia Hill. And I was just so impressed at not only how passionate she was about the topic of water, but also how well-researched and studied she was. 
And in this episode, we just spoke about so many different things. I really feel like we covered uh, a lot of ground. And I think I just truly want everyone to tune in and listen without me uh, priming you so much about what we spoke about. But I will share a little bit more about Isabel Friend. Isabel Friend is an extensive researcher and educator on all things regarding water, the sacred source of all life. She is a certified nutritionist, an incredible public speaker, an advisor to various global water initiatives, and simply an amazing teacher for all of those interested in learning more about the most sacred, complex, mysterious substance in the universe, water. Just a few of the things we discussed is the magical and mysterious qualities of water and how water can be used for a solution for many of the problems we face today. We also spoke about the different kinds of water, structured versus bulk, uh, alkaline, kangen, and a lot of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have today with a lot of the trends and fads that we see happening with water becoming commodified and being sold as a product, et cetera, et cetera. We discussed the dangers of microplastics and other toxins that are entering all of our waters all over the planet. And how this not only affects uh, our bodies and our physical well-being, but also our mental well-being. We went into privatized water, the greed of corporations, these water mafias and cartels that are doing so many activities that are essentially anti-water, anti-human, anti-life. And we spoke a little bit of how we as everyday people can combat some of these corporations and entities that are working very hard to make water not so accessible to all of us. And eventually we spoke about what is most important to me, and that is the indigenous teachings and the spiritual teachings of this sacred water. And how when, as Isabel says, we view water as something more than just what we've been taught it to be, when we really see it for its beautiful, uh, necessary, magical, generous, loving, uh, alive being, then we can really understand how we must treat this water. And for me, the indigenous and native and spiritual and, and more harmonious viewpoints of what this water means to us is the way in which we can really change how we treat this water, how we receive this water, and increase our gratitude for this amazing source of life. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Isabel is generous enough to be offering a discount to all of my listeners. You can receive all that information from her at the end of the podcast and also in the show notes. And I really appreciate you all taking time to listen to our conversation today. Hope you enjoy. Okay, Isabel Friend, welcome to Masters of Ceremony. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Mm, there's so many different directions we could go in regarding this topic of water. This most important topic in in my eyes that I have covered yet on this podcast. And um, 
I took your seven-day e-course, Navigating the Waters, and uh, just as Amber Magnolia Hill stated in her podcast with you, I don't think I've ever taken as many notes um, <laughs> watching an e-course before watching YouTube videos, really. I mean, I have so awesome. many notes and I learned so much. And um, as stated in the intro, you have been such a passionate, devoted protector and educator on the topic of water for the past 12 years. And before we get into the litany of aspects of how water is the element we need to address in order to save ourselves and the planet, I would love to hear a little bit about your upbringing and what eventually led you to become a water researcher and educator. Mm, thanks for asking. Um, I first started studying water in 2009 when I was living in Brooklyn. And um, at the time, I was a nutritionist. And I was really interested in what are all of the ways that health and nutrition can help human beings to live into their optimal potential. And I really feel that human potential is infinite. I believe that there is just an infinite, vast um, capacity that we have within ourselves that we have not even tapped into, not even begun to scratch the surface. And at the time, I really thought, you know, you are what you eat. And so it must be food that that can help us to unlock that potential. And um, I gradually started to realize as I was, I was working with clients, and, you know, people are statistically more likely to change religion than they are to change their diet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so... I just started to realize that even more so than we are what we eat, it's really that we are what we drink because we're 70% water by volume and we're 99.9% .9 water molecules molecularly. And I started to drink spring water at that time. I started to wildcraft and forage my water. Um, and that really just made all the difference um, in my mentality, my psychology, my emotions, my physiology. And that led me into the work of Victor Schauberger, who was, they call him the water wizard. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was really bringing through some of the most incredible wisdom about water. I mean, what Tesla was for electricity, Schauberger was for water. Mm. Um, and that really started my rabbit hole. That's when I really started to realize, oh my gosh, water really has the answers to solve every one of humanity's toughest questions. Mm. Um, and I know you asked about my upbringing before that saga started in, in 2009. And um, honestly, I wish I had some epic like superhero origin story for this. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I was really yeah. into water my whole life. And, um, <laughs> but actually, I think I just had kind of a pretty normal childhood. I grew up in, in Georgia and Virginia. I did always really, really love to swim. And I loved being by the ocean. Mm. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't say water was any more a part of my life than any other normal kid. You know, I think we all kind of grow up thinking that water is just as common as dust and just as simple, right? And I think there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for why that's kind of <laughs> humanity's um, default perception. Yeah, but totally. But it just couldn't be farther from the truth. Mm. Wow. Wow. So knowing a bit that you just fell into um maybe it's safe to say i hope it's not um i hope it's not too much of an overstatement to say that you quickly became obsessed with water as you began yeah. to <laughs> learn about the magic of it um i think it's very important for us 
and for people to simply be reminded of how important water is because it feels like it's so obvious, but obviously if you look at the state of just our planet today, you can see that most people do not respect and do not understand the importance of this sacred uh, force of life. So I would love to just begin with maybe if you can share some of the very magical properties of water and how not only can it be the solution to many of the problems we face today, but also just simply how miraculous of a substance water is. Yeah, this is a really juicy place to start. I'm glad you asked (laughs) that. Um, Of course, we've all heard that water is life, right? In fact, before the show, I saw you were even wearing a Water is Life t-shirt. I just love that. (laughs) And it's so true. There's so much truth to that. You know, as magical as life is, that's how magical water is. As mysterious as life is, that's how mysterious water is. You know, it's as much potential as life has, that's how much potential water has. Um, But in some ways, it's almost more accurate to say that living water is life. And there is a very, very big distinction between living water and dead water because water itself is a physical body, right? She's the, she's the body of life force. She's the body of consciousness. And just like our bodies, she can be healthy or sick, alive or dead. And the vast majority of water that we ever come into contact with is dead water. In fact, there's a Um, you know, indigenous traditions all over the world talk about this distinction. And I think one of the tribes that really um, expresses it um, beautifully is the Mandean tribe, which is a Gnostic sect in um, indigenous to Southern Iraq. And they say that they call it the difference between living water and black water. And they Mm. say that nine tenths, or no, sorry, eight ninths, of all water on the planet is black water or dead water. And only one ninth is living water. And they call this the vessel of light. And they say that it has, that this water has access to the realms of light. And there's a lot of good reason for that, that we'll go into. Um, But just to kind of set the stage first, I think it's important to, to recognize that when water is living, when it's alive, when it's healthy, It has electromagnetic conductivity. It has molecular coherence. It's able to sense and store and transduce and amplify and transmit energy, information, and vibrational frequencies. Just like a quartz crystal is able to do when we put it in watches and computers, it acts like a stabilizing resonator for the different frequencies, and it's able to help transduce um, different frequencies. For example, your LCD screen that you're looking at right now probably Mm -hmm. is a liquid crystal display, right? And it's able to transduce electrical frequency into visual display. And that's what water is able to do as well in terms of turning one kind of energy into another kind of energy. So that's that transduction aspect of, of what living water is able to do. And then when it comes to sensing all of the information around it, it's extremely sensitive. There's a a researcher named uh, Theodore Schwenk who called water the Earth's sensory organ Mm. because she's constantly very subtly attuned to electromagnetic stimuli and vibratory stimuli and, and auditory stimuli and visual stimuli and emotional stimuli, everything that's going on around her. She has eyes, babe. She's always, always watching. 
And then, of course, she can also transmit and amplify um, all this information, all these frequencies. So water is literally the stage upon which all of life is played. But when, when water loses those capacities, it becomes bulk water, which, again, is what most of, most of us know of as water. You can call it dead water. In, in um, scientific laboratories, they call it bulk water. And it's largely because, you know, we mostly only have experience with this denatured, treated, processed, stagnant water, which is why, like we talked about before, that we just kind of assume water to be simple and unremarkable. But when mm. we're really talking about the beauty and the magic of water, um, there's a few recent discoveries about, about living water that I think will help shed some light on this for your listeners. And it's just amazing. So when water is living, the, the molecules form together in hexagonal bonds. The hydrogens form these electrostatic hydrogen bonds, and they form this hexagonal matrix of crystalline clusters. And every single cluster of water molecules functions as a memory cell. And each and every memory cell, each and every cluster of water molecules, we're talking super, 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 super microscopic. You can maybe see it with an electron microscope, right? Mm. Each cluster has 440,000 distinct panels on it. Wow. Now that's, that's, only, the, that's only using um, an atomic force microscope, which is the most powerful microscope in the world. That's the smallest measurements we're able to get. But because water is fractal in nature, if we had more powerful instruments, we would see that there are actually more than 440,000 panels. We would see that each one of those panels has panels on it has smaller panels on it so we can say it has at least this many panels and each one of those panels is responsible for sensing storing amplifying transducing transmitting again information so they're basically like this array of satellites kind of yes and these crystalline clusters they're like little molecular icebergs of liquid crystal that float in bulk liquid and they become more and more dense and more and more glacial as the water becomes more organized into its fourth phase so that's when the frequencies can become more connected and more in phase with each other. Now, if you consider the way that computer memory works, for example, the two are really, really similar. So computer memory, right, you have ones and zeros, ons and offs, and it's because of this quartz crystal silicone molecules, you know, each atom is capable of two different configurations. And because there's so many of these atoms, even just two configurations can store a lot of information, right? But if you think about the fourth phase of water, this crystalline form of water, when it's coherent like this, the oxygens have six different valent states mm. or oxidation states. Six. Wow. So if you had six states of silicone in a computer rather than two states, it would be, if you did the math on that, the increase of information density is something like a billion times the information density compared to a computer. So water wow. molecules are about a billion times, each molecule, each individual molecule is about a billion times more intelligent than even the world's most advanced nanocomputers, right? This is why Dr. Rustin Roy said that crystalline water is the world's most malleable computer because really, I mean, she she does store the, the codes and the patterns and the information for all of life throughout the entire universe. And when she absorbs these frequencies, this, this um, stimulation from her environment, say, say light, for example, say she's next to a light source, sunlight or starlight or moonlight. So um, it will act, it will then 
activate these, um, these six different valence states basically activates oxygen's outer electrons into higher energy levels. And then within a picosecond, which is like, I don't know, like a zillionth of a second, I don't know, yeah. a millionth or something, a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of an instant, um, it will return that charge to ground level again. So the super instantaneous process emits all of these photons, which is basically light energy. It's, it's a photon is a boson and a boson is the closest particle to the quantum fields, to the source energy, right? And it will emit a photon. It will emit these photons with a frequency of about one quadrillion hertz. I'm not making that up. Literally, Whoa. it emits it at a quadrillion hertz. I mean, this is absolutely epic on a quantum scale like think about the the highest frequency thing that a rife machine has ever tested before it's like i think the highest frequency thing is what around like 500 hertz i think 500 compared to one quadrillion so we're talking about water being a source of free energy here yes we're talking about each molecule of water having more energy stored within it than the current strongest nuclear power reactors on the planet. This is the magic of water. This is just one glimpse. I mean, this is just one one fraction of the facet of the meniscus of water that, yeah, it's it goes so deep. It's so mysterious and so magical and it's capable of so much. Wow. It's wow. liquid light. Yes, it certainly is. And I feel like from all of the research that has ever been done on water and from everything you just shared it's pretty obvious that we're only scratching the surface and uh Mm -hmm. there's so much more necessary um application of this potential of this amazing source of life i'm curious to you and maybe you can speak on some of the work of your uh, favorite researchers what are the technological and ecological ramifications of harnessing this power of water oh there's so many there's really so many um well for one thing as we just spoke about free energy could be accessible to all people Um, I think it's also important to recognize because water itself is not accessible to all people right now because we have some misconceptions about water and we globally, we treat water from the basis of those misconceptions, um, which really denatures her and and leads her to kind of um, dry up and disappear. However, if we start treating water as, um, as a conscious, sentient, living entity that she is, um, then we recognize that water also has the capacity to reproduce herself, just like any living entity does. And this is this goes starkly against what you would learn in any hydrology school. Um, but mm. this is what you know Schauberger discovered, and and other people have um, have corroborated is that water is capable of reproducing. So um, when you are able to work with that principle, then we could turn deserts into lush food forests. There would be no more starvation. We would be able to grow prolific crops anywhere. Um, And everyone could have access to a source of free energy, which would utterly and radically destabilize our our entire capitalistic paradigm. You just cannot have a capitalistic model where everyone has access to infinite resources and Mm, abundance. True. Very true. And, um, And also... 
other aspects of, of um, the application for agriculture as well. You know, when you treat um, plants with water that is structured, it has six, the plants end up having 600% higher photon radiation, um, which again is, is the light energy that it emits. So basically the, the energy of the fruit, the aura of the fruit, it can be measured using Carillion photography, for example, um, so there's just a lot more life force vitality to food that's grown with structured water. There's also some really incredible studies coming out of um, of Israel in particular, um, and and all throughout Europe as well. Actually, uh, especially in Russia, they've been using magnetized water for years. They call it Wonder Water. Um, but the most in-depth studies I'm familiar with using magnetized water on um, on farm animals are out of Israel and the animals are just so much healthier. I forget the exact statistics mm. at the moment, but they end up producing so much more milk, so much more eggs. Beautiful. They, they don't have to use, I mean, a fraction, they don't have to use the antibiotics. They don't have to use all of these just awful um, RGBH. Actually the cows who were fed magnetized water had a higher output of milk than the cows that were treated with RGBH. Wow. And we know that that's a, that's a hormone that they're giving to these cows that has massive ramifications for the endocrine systems of people who drink that milk. Yes. <laughs> so when it comes to agriculture, huge ramifications, of course. Um, and when we're talking about health and wellness, not only do we become so much healthier when we eat plants and animals that are grown with this kind of water, but when we drink this kind of water, our health just skyrockets. It's through the roof. It's incredible. There are so many applications of water in medicine. Of course, you know, we're all familiar with homeopathy is one version of that, where they treat structured water with specific um, remedies or specific vibrational frequencies. And then the water is able to carry those frequencies. Well, there are a couple of researchers, um, David, David Gann and his last name is Yin. I forget his first name, but these two researchers, they actually were not trying to study homeopathy at all. One of them was a, um, a, um, a physicist. I must call him a physician. <laughs> he could be now, but um, he was a physicist. And then the other one was uh, an engineer. And they just happened to stumble across what they call double helix water. Um, which is a way of magnifying preparations by having just one tiny little atom of something in um, a preparation of water. So if there's only one teeny tiny little atom of a substance in the water, and then you split that atom apart so that it's not even a full atom of that substance anymore, then you can say that there's, there's nothing of the substance left. And yet, because they do it in a very specific way, and this researcher, Yin, was able to perfect the mathematical formulations and calculations for exactly how to make the strongest double helix remedies. I mean, the effects that this is having on people's health is incredible. And it's basically, they, they ended up stumbling upon the principle upon which um, homeopathy actually operates, but far, far, I mean, they perfected it. It's far more, um, more effective. And I think one of the reasons why homeopathy, um, hasn't been widely adopted is because sometimes it's, um, it can be extremely effective when it's done really well, but there are just so many factors that yes. you can't really control for when you're making a homeopathic 
preparation because mm-hmm. it's so sensitive to everything in its environment. And they were using the most advanced labs in the country in, in the US. And so they were able to control for every single little detail and and the water that the homeopathic remedies that they made were just shocking. So I think that once homeopathy takes this next step in evolution, um, it's going to become an even more viable option in the field of medicine. And even so, even, even at the level it's at now, I mean, we don't necessarily recognize it in the States as being a viable uh, form of medicine. And yet doctors all over the world are using it with great success. Um, I've heard stories coming out of India of doctors using it for their oncology patients with just miraculous results. Amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last one I want to mention, there are so many, I mean, it's just, there's just so many applications for technology Please, that we it. could do a whole <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on this alone. Actually, I teach a whole workshop on on just this alone at, at my retreats. Um, but there's one more that I think is particularly interesting, and that is um, there was this researcher, last name of Myers. Uh, I think Stanley Myers. I think his name is Stanley Myers, but don't quote me. I think it was, it was definitely Myers. Anyway, he he developed um, an engine, a car engine, that would run on water. And we've all heard of hydrogen fuel cells, right? And this is touted as being some new sustainable model for the future, but there's a lot of issues with hydrogen fuel cells. They're extremely volatile. You know, it's really hard to create them. It's It's really hard to maintain them, like all of this. And this engine was able to run on literally any kind of water because wow. you could use or you could use distilled water, you could use lake water, you could get a gallon out of your pool. It doesn't matter. You put that in there and then it runs on an electrolysis process, which is similar to the hydrogen fuel cells in that it ends up splitting the hydrogen from the oxygen and then um, and then it oxidizes the, the hydrogen and you're actually able to get, get this, a hundred miles per single gallon of water. Wow. 100 miles per yes. gallon. Yes. Wow. Yes. Per <laughs> single gallon of water. And the only wow. waste that it produces, I mean, forget about air pollution. It just produces water. Yes. <laughs> so it literally, it's just rain coming out of the back of your car, you know, watering the crops along the way to your destination. And, um, and so of course he was murdered, um, really brutally. He was, um, in a restaurant. I mean, he actually got really far. His company got pretty far. And there was another company out of Japan who was doing something similar at the same time. So um, they were bought off, the the other company in Japan. There were some, um, I forget it was energy companies or oil companies or car companies, whoever it was that um, bought up all of their patents and then silenced them and and shut the company down. Wow. Uh, And they just profited massively. Well, it's par for the course. Myers wasn't willing to do that. He he wasn't willing to sell out. And so they had to knock him off. He was at a restaurant and he took a sip of cranberry juice and then he stood up and said, I've been poisoned and killed over dead. Wow. And then they bought up his patents anyways. <laughs> wow. So well, hopefully we'll see a revival of his work somehow. I'm sure. I mean, the more this information gets out there and the more people realize the importance of it, um, it's going to continue to to flow and get out there. And I want to circle back to later in the podcast, this whole idea of basically these water mafias where people mm. are, are committing atrocious crimes, such as you just described, um, out of greed, out of uh, simply 
wanting to make money and profit off of this water. And we're going to circle back to that at some point later in the podcast. But I would Just a little l- teaser for your listeners. Yes, completely. <laughs> Continue to listen. It's going to get very deep. Um, I would love to circle back to the healing capabilities of water for the human vessel. We know mm-hmm. of the ecological ramifications. We know of some of the technolo- technological ones. But you taught me in one of your uh, classes that the water you drink turns into your blood within five minutes. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, it drove home a point that I thought I already understood, but it really sank in deeper to understand that this water that I'm drinking is becoming my life force as it assimilates into my entire bloodstream. And you also have shared, and I've heard others share this as well, that there's no point in looking into changing your diet if you're not willing to change the water you drink. So I would love to ask you two questions. One, uh, what is the difference between this bulk water that most people are drinking and the structured crystalline water that you discuss? And what are some of the physical, emotional, spiritual changes that one experiences when they switch over to drinking this structured crystalline water? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And you're so right about that because, you know, as we said in the beginning, you know, you're 70% water by volume. We've all heard this. Well, you're, you're like, when you're born, you're about 90% water. By the time you're an elder, you're about 50% water by volume. There are a lot of researchers who say that really it's the whole aging process is just a process of drying out and Mm. all of the attendant disease states that come with aging and inflammation, they are all results also of drying out and of dehydration. And I think one thing that we kind of take for granted is um, just how crucial water is to every single function that the body performs. There isn't a single thing, not a single thing that happens in your body that doesn't involve water. And think about how many Mm. quadrillions of miracles your body is performing in every single second, right? Like every cell that functions on protein folding those proteins are only able to fold because each protein is surrounded by 10,000 water molecules. And those molecules are shifting phases from bulk to structured. And that's what gives proteins the backbone to stand up or the relaxation to fold everything, everything the body does. And so, you know, as you said, you can be eating a really high quality diet and you can be spending half your paycheck at a Whole Foods and mm-hmm. getting everything, you know, gluten-free, farm-raised, happy cows, just everything perfect and dialed in. Um, but if you're drinking swag water, then your body actually isn't even going to be able to absorb all of those nutrients because water metabolism mediates the uptake of all, all, uh, all the nourishment, all the nutrients into our bodies. Um, and so it's really our first line of health. And as I'm sure you know, you ask any indigenous wisdom keeper and they'll tell you that water is our primary medicine. Yes. So it's important to look at the kind of water we drink. And it's equally as important, if not more so, to look at our lifestyle factors that affect hydration. Because people ask me all the time, you know, what kind of water should I be drinking and how much water should I be drinking? And that is really important. But 
even that doesn't really matter as much if your body isn't optimized to be able to absorb it, then it could just go right through you. Right. So I'd like to, I'd like to circle back to that at the end of this question, but I want to address what you said first, which is um, the difference between um, different kinds of water. So um, tap water, of course, it's almost not even worth calling it water. It's like tap liquid Mm -hmm. because, you know, water is H2O, but you start putting fluoride and chlorine and then all of these additives, these pH balancers, and then they have all of the the greases and the lubricants from, from the pumps and the pipes that are leaching into the water. And then they have to put stabilizers in the water to, um, to balance those out and not Uh. to mention all of the, um, yeah, the heavy metals that are leaching into the water from the pipes. And then you have, especially in big cities, you have what's called a closed loop system or what hydrologists affectionately refer to as toilet to tap, where the water is being used in homes and businesses. Then it goes to the treatment facility, it's treated, and then it's pumped right back to homes and businesses again. And so as a result of this constant loop, you know, you're literally drinking water that has been through other people's bodies. And I got to say, like, as much as they are doing their absolute best at those treatment facilities, there are some things that are just such sub-micron particulates that you just can't get them all out. And Mm -hmm. of particular um, concern are the pharmaceuticals. Yes. So they've tested water tap water at, um, in, in the major cities in the U S and they found over 50 pharmaceuticals in this water, you know, especially SSRI medications and birth control pills and all these different things. Wow. Um, now all of these of course have been more or less tested depending on how much you trust pharmaceutical companies. They've been more or less tested in clinical trials, you know, one by one individually at the prescribed dosages, but it's really a massive experiment that's being played on the public right now. What happens if we give teeny tiny doses of 50 different pharmaceuticals to people all of the time? What effect is that going to have on people's psychology? And um, I think when you when you see this, the state, the mental state that people are in as a whole, I mean, a, a broad, broad brush stroke here, um, but in cities, there's something in the water, you know? Completely. So. Um, if you have to drink tap water, first of all, I don't believe that anybody has to drink tap water because there are always springs available, usually closer than most people realize. But um, insofar as you might have to, and, and certainly if you live in a city, you might have to shower in it. You know, when you take a bath, your body absorbs one and a half liters of water through your skin. So um, filtering our shower water and our bath water is really important as well. Um, definitely, definitely recommend getting a super high quality filter. A lot of people to avoid the tap water phenomenon, they go with distilled or reverse osmosis water. And a lot of, um, a lot of even hydrologists are super pro reverse osmosis because Mm. there's this paradigm of, um, you know, it's kind of the same paradigm that we had around food, maybe 50, 60 years ago where we said, okay, you know, if we, if we take sugar and we strip it of everything until it's just a pure carbohydrate. It's just a pure white sugar. It's so pure now that it must be healthier, right? And we did the same thing with wheat. You know, we stripped it of the molasses and the B vitamins and the insoluble and insoluble fibers. And we said, okay, now we're just left with a pure carbohydrate is pure white flour. And because it's so pure, it must be better for us, right? And now we know that's not true. We know that anytime you take something and you process it, process it, process it, 
it can turn a medicine into a poison. You know, we see the same thing with the coca plant. You can chew on coca leaves all day and it's going to be really good for your body. But if you refine that down to cocaine, then that is poison. So we're doing the same thing with water when it comes to distillation and reverse osmosis. They say, oh, if you just have the pure H2O, then that's going to be the best for you because it's so pure. And unfortunately, it's just not true. It's too refined. It's too processed. And you'll never find just pure H2O in nature. In nature, water is a whole, complete, well-rounded, balanced being that contains all of the elements, earth, air, fire, and ether. And it also contains a broad spectrum scope of minerals and electrolytes. um, And we need these for our healthy functioning and our healthy digestion. And it'll also contain beneficial microbes, just like... um, just like food grown in organic soil will contain a spectrum of beneficial microbes that our yes. bodies need. You know, all of our, the majority of our neurotransmitters are actually created in our gut. Mm-hmm. And so if we're not getting a broad enough spectrum of, of microbes, just the, the cascade, the ripple effects in our health and our psychology are just too broad to go into here. But it's really important that we have a broad spectrum water. Um, and a water that not only has those physical components of the minerals and the microbes, but also to have the energetic components as well, that, um, that it's been exposed to beneficial light frequencies, beneficial sound frequencies, um, and that it has structure. And the structure is really what sets the stage for the rest of it. Because your body can't really absorb water that's unstructured very well. It's just not bioavailable. That's why so many people, you know, they mean well and they say, okay, I get it. Water's important. I need to hydrate. They start drinking a lot of water and they just start going to the bathroom a ton. (laughs) You know, it just washes straight through them. Mm -hmm. A certain amount, a certain level of that is totally natural. Like, of course, you drink more, you're going to pee more. but, um, But most people are drinking water that not only isn't hydrating them, but it's actively dehydrating them. Mm. So there's a few factors. If you're drinking reverse osmosis or distilled water, it's what hydrologists call an aggressive solvent because it's had everything robbed from it, everything leached from it, because the, the molecules are so chaotic, the hydrogen bonds are forming and breaking apart billions of times per second. It just wants to fill itself back up again. It's hungry. And so Mm. it will actually leach minerals from your body. Um, In some cases, if you're going through a really intense cleanse, that can be a good thing, but there are better ways. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I just want to add that caveat because I know some people are super pro distilled water if they're going through like a heavy metal cleanse or something like that. And it can be good in those cases, but also there are better ways. There are more effective ways than using distilled water for that. Um, but yeah, it leaches minerals from your body. And so it's really important to, to make sure that, um, that the water is already full when you drink it. Victor Schauberger calls it the difference between mature and immature water. So mature or immature water is water that may or may not already have some structure to it, but that structure, the structure basically forms the matrix Right. And then it's a matter of what you fill that matrix with that determines if it's mature water. Um, MJ Pangman, another great researcher, says that that really um, our relationship with water is like a dance and forming the structure of the water is like setting the stage for the dance. And then the stimuli 
um, the vibratory and energetic stimuli that you fill the water with, that's really the music for the dance. And mm. so we have the physical components, the quantitative components of um, getting that earth element in there with the minerals, getting that air element in there by um, making sure that it's able to breathe, it's able to exchange gases like oxygen and carbonic acid, making sure that it has, you know, a healthy amount of, of nanobubbles that is aerated. So those are sort of the quantitative elements of creating healthy water. And then the qualitative elements of creating healthy water are making sure that, you know, it's hearing beautiful music or it's exposed to the Schumann resonance or it's exposed to a little bit of sunshine, not a lot of sunshine because the heat can break down the water molecules, but a bit of sunshine or moonlight or starlight or red lights. Um, actually red light therapy is one of the most surefire ways to build up a really strong exclusion zone. Another word for crystalline and a really strong crystalline phase of the water. Mm. So yeah, I would say those are the main things to focus on. If you're, if you're transforming dead water into living water, you want to set the stage, you want to play the music, you want to make sure it has all the five elements in there. You want to make sure it's quantitatively and qualitatively mature water. Beautiful. And just to clarify for our listeners, what is the core difference in the molecular structure of structured crystalline water? What is going on in that water that is very different from the water we are drinking today, but very similar to the water our ancestors drank? Mm -hmm. Well, our ancestors for longer than we've been homo sapiens. They say we've been homo sapiens for what, 200,000 years. <laughs> and for far longer than that, we've been drinking preferably spring water. I mean, water from nature in general, um, of course, the water in streams now I would not recommend whatsoever, but spring water is still um, one of the highest sources of water that we can access. Um, you know, naturally water comes from the ground. And so our blood is bestowed to us by mother earth. But in the current paradigm, we have all of these corporate and municipal surrogate stand-ins between ourselves and the source of our life. Um, but when it comes to spring water, it automatically has that structure because it's drawn to the surface in a vortex of lunar gravity. And it's drawn from deep, deep, deep underground, deep in the bedrock, where it's been for hundreds to even thousands of years, depending on the, the depth and the age of that aquifer. And then on the way to the surface, it encounters um, all of the, the filtering layers of the soil and carbon deposits and rocks and, um, and roots and it also encounters all of the, the minerals and electrolytes of the, of the clay and the rocks along the way. And it also contains these geomagnetic, electromagnetic influences of any um, particularly magnetic rocks that might be in the aquifer. So it's a really healthy, well-rounded water. You know, it's only within the past maybe two or three generations humans have fallen out of this habit. And that's just crazy for me to think of like, wow, for hundreds of thousands of years, we've been drinking this kind of water. And then within only two or three generations, we've been so disconnected from our source. Yeah. But now you ask people to drink water from the ground and they're like, ew, isn't that dangerous? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wow. um, your food doesn't come from a grocery store. Your water doesn't come from a tap. They both come from the earth. And it's so important to establish that connection again. Yes. So that's one aspect of your question. And then the other aspect is what is this? structure that we're talking about. Um, 
And basically, so we all know that water is H2O, right? Dihydrogen oxide. But really, it's the way that those water molecules come together that determine everything. So, you know, there are over 63 anomalies about water that scientists currently don't understand, like over 63 ways that water behaves that are just total mysteries that no lab can explain. And we're starting to realize that the reason it's been so elusive to us this whole time is because we've been looking at water molecules individually. Same reason why we've been thinking distilled and reverse osmosis would be good for us because we just think, oh, we have these little H2O molecules that are pure. So that must be good. Mm. But that's like looking at one human being and thinking you can understand all of humanity as a whole. It doesn't work that way. Like we are who we are and humanity is who it is because of the relationships that we form, because of our family bonds, because of our community bonds, because of our cultural bonds. And um, in those, those cultures, that diversity, the richness of the tapestries of our connections and the information and the artistry that's held in those connections, like that's really what makes humanity beautiful. And it's the same with water. So if it's bulk dead water, the molecules are bouncing around randomly. They're somewhat isolated from one another. They're forming and breaking apart billions of times per second. They have no time to snuggle up, connect with one another, have a little dance together and exchange information. Like we said before, each cluster of water molecules has 440,000 panels on it that make it richly intelligent, that make it patterned with with beautiful vibratory information about its, its life and its experience. But if those clusters can't form, then the then there's no cohesion, there's no pattern, there's no structure. It can't conduct the frequencies of life, these signals of life. Mm. Um, But when they do come together with a specific bond angle, I think it's a 109 degree bond angle, they form these beautiful hexagonal Hexagonal crystalline. (laughs) Yes. I think we just have a new word there. I'm going to, I'm going to TM that one. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Um, So they form these matrices that are um, single layer sheets, but they're not glued together by the protons. And so they're, they're really flexible. Um, and it's actually beyond solid liquid and gas. It's actually a fourth phase of water. Dr. Gerald Pollack calls it exclusionary zone water because, um, because the molecules are so tightly connected. They're just hugging one another so sweetly that it excludes um, any particulates, any toxins, anything like that from its environment. So this is one of the ways that, that it's so beneficial for our health, because if we're made of the highest quality, um, hexagonal <laughs> water, <laughs> then it will exclude toxicity. It will literally push toxins out from our cells. Now, and now I think it's really important to, um, to note that all bio water is structured to some extent. You're only alive because the water in your body is in a crystalline form. You know, that's why you're not just, we can say you're 99.95% water molecules, but you're not just a puddle on the floor, right? Mm, Your water molecules are in this gel phase, in this exclusionary zone phase. And we see a direct correlation between the quality of the structure of your water molecules within your cells and your intracellular and extracellular fluids and the quality of your health. So the more bulk and destructured your water becomes, 
it immediately translates into um, aging and disease. Like there's been no clearer um, correlation between anything that I've found um, in my 12 years of being obsessed with, with health and wellness. I mean, this really is the cutting edge of medicine mm. because, you know, there are a lot of people who say that that um, inflammation is the root of all disease. Well, you can't have inflammation in a well-hydrated body because inflammation you know, comes from the Latin to inflame. It's literally like setting parts of your body on fire. It's, it's, yes. it's too much heat. And what do you do when something's on fire? You need water to put that out. So inflammation is the root of all disease. Yes, but dehydration is the root of inflammation. And there are some people who say that acidity is the root of all disease. And if you look at the... Um, at the physiology of your body becoming more acidic. It's one of the adaptive responses that happens when there isn't enough water for the body to carry out its functions, right? So the more and more we're seeing at the root of every disease state, it's not just a, a lack of enough water, like quantitative amount of water, but really, really this qualitative difference of the water. It's not necessarily how much, but what phase is the water of your body. It's yes. in this highly crystalline phase, baby, you're going to be healthy, happy, vibrant, energetic. And, um, and it's, it's really profound. This is actually what my new course is all about. It's all about just the bio water. It's just the, the waters in your body, how to really optimize your, your physicality in that way. It's been super fun to dive into. Mm, beautiful. We're going to speak about that towards the end and push people towards that course, because I think it's going to be a invaluable resource for everybody interested in this topic. Um, I would love to shift gears a little bit with a story and it relates to everything we're sharing, but I remember there was a moment, I may have been in high school actually, where I went to go get some water out of the back of my mom's car. And, you know, it was just a big case of like Aquafina or Poland Spring or something. And it was a hot summer day and I had taken one of the water bottles out of the car and I can literally see that the bottle had partially melted and mm -hmm. I can see this solution of water and plastic in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was already aware at that point in my life about the importance of the quantity of water to drink. But I remember after that day, I started to do some research into how much plastic we are drinking daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. And uh, after that point, I only drank out of glass bottles. I became the kid <laughs> at school who always had a big glass jug. Uh, the security guards in my school would be making fun of me. Uh, <laughs> kids would be laughing at me. And I, I loved it. You know, and I would, at that point, I became very passionate and would educate others. But in one of your courses, you said people who only drink bottled water might swallow 90,000 particles of microplastics with each year. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it may even be more than that. Um, yeah, I, it, it equates to about one credit card worth of plastic per week. Per week. Oh, <laughs> per my. Week. Oh, yeah. my. Isabel, I would love for you to speak about... Uh, the litany of issues we are facing as on a, on a global scale, uh, drinking out of plastic bottles, because I have so many people in my life, so many people in my family who still go out to the department store and buy a big 40, uh, bottle package of, you know, water that is 
already unhealthy, but then they're drinking it out of this terrible plastic. And uh, yeah. it's a battle I've been fighting for many years, but I would love for you to so articulately describe the dangers that we are actually facing. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you were you were a woke high schooler. <laughs> you started avoiding that young. Um, it's really, gosh, it's so important. And and I feel for the people who who you know go to Sam's Club and get these big cases of water bottles. Like it's convenient, you yeah, know. And completely. if you think of if you think of water as being an inanimate object, then convenience is going to be the most important thing for that, mm. you know. Um, and so it's really just a matter of shifting this paradigm, shifting this relationship, because when you start recognizing that water is not an inanimate object, um, then then it doesn't even matter, you know, whether it's in plastic or whatever. You just you can't treat it. You can't objectify it like mm, that. Very true. Anymore. And um, yeah, there's a there's an analogy that I really like here that's really um Accurate. So what happens when you soak a tea bag in water? Mm, it uh, extracts whatever is in the tea bag. Yeah, you make tea. Yep. So what happens when you soak plastic in water? You're going to get plastic tea. It's yes. as simple as that. You know, water is a solvent. It dissolves things into it. It's the universal solvent. It dissolves everything, you know? I like to say it's also, you know, when you dissolve something into water, you have a solution and water is the solution <laughs> to solve or dissolve <laughs> yes. all the problems. But anyway. <laughs> There's so much amazing water um, etymology that we can get into as well, but that's a whole nother oh, conversation. Really There's so much. We could do a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yes. Completely. But yes, you are making so basically we, plastic tea. Totally. You're mm -hmm. making plastic tea. And um, we already know that plastic is not biodegradable, meaning life and soil doesn't break it down. So what does break it down? Well, it's photodegradable and thermodegradable, meaning that light and heat are what start to break it down. So anytime you have a plastic water bottle that's exposed to light of any kind, even on a teeny, 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 tiny little um, microscopic imperceptible level, those xenoestrogens are breaking down into the water. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so <clears throat> even if you were to somehow keep your plastic bottles away from the light somehow, a lot of companies are doing what's called a hot fill. So to save time and money, basically they pour water into the plastic bottle while it's still hot. So there's no time for the plastic to off gas. Like oh typically, my. you know, standard practice for, for making plastic, anything of plastic is you pour it into the mold. And then depending on what kind of plastic it is, you leave it uh, in the factory or in a warehouse to let it off gas for anywhere from weeks to months to even like a year or more, depending on what kind of plastic it is, right? You mm. let it off gas. But what they're doing now, I know Fiji does this. Um, some other companies do this where they just pour the water in straight away while the, while the, um, well, the plastic is still forming. Wow. And so it just off gases right into the bottle. Now, what's so crucial about this is, is that plastic contains what's called xenoestrogens. And xeno just means foreign. So if it were phytoestrogens, it would be from a plant source, right? So like soybeans, for example, have a lot of phytoestrogens. Um, beer has a lot of phytoestrogenic properties. Yes. These are more natural, but still concerning sources of estrogen. Um, but xenoestrogens are just 
totally um, foreign to us. They're, they're artificial. And so estrogen is this feminine, this more feminine hormone. Of course, men and women both have estrogen to some extent, um, but men really do not need much estrogen at all in their bodies. And, and our endocrine systems are sensitive in parts per billion, mm. meaning that they're sensitive to the most teeny, teeny, tiny little amounts. Like you're, you have seven endocrine glands and they correspond more or less in location and kind of more or less in function to, <clears throat> to your seven chakras. So they're like one of the physical counterparts to your chakras. Yes. So if you think of your chakras as electromagnetic um, centers, seven electromagnetic centers in your body, and your electrical, um, the physical counterpart of the electrical aspect of those chakras would be the seven main nerve plexes. So right where your seven endocrine glands are, you actually also have seven main nerve plexes or places where tons of tons of nerve fibers come together. Mm -hmm. So that's the electrical component. And then the magnetic component. So like your, your electrical um, capacity is like your mentality and your thoughts and your um, magnetic capacity is like your feelings and your emotions. Yes. This is um, according to Dr. Joe Dispenza. And so your electromagnetic thoughts and emotions chakras from which you pattern your entire world and perception and paradigm of reality from these energy centers, they have the physical counterparts and the electrical nerve plexes and the, the um, more emotional um endocrine glands yes and they regulate all of your hormonal function and your hormones are really the way that you relate to your entire world your hormones regulate sort of the the filter through which you perceive and respond to everything and so keeping your hormones in balance is crucial. It's crucial, crucial, crucial. And when we have so much extra xenoestrogens coming into our super sensitive endocrine systems, it's just throwing everything out of whack. Mm. Um, you know, sperm counts are the lowest they've ever been ever. Testosterone levels are extremely low. You know, in the United States, especially, we just have such horrifically um, terrible rates of, of infertility compared to other places. And it's, it's that way in a lot of the Western or the developed world. Um, and increasingly so all of the time, this infertility is a massive issue and it's just having ripple effects into so many aspects of our health. So we really need to start recognizing that plastic is not edible. And yet we are eating a plastic, a, a credit cards worth every week. Mm, wow. Yeah. I've, I've learned that your, your hormonal system is really what is driving the vehicle of your thoughts and feelings. And to know that so many people are consuming this exogenous form of estrogen, which is totally imbalancing their endocrine system, is uh, it's scary. And it makes my conspiratorial mind go to places uh, <laughs> thinking that these people know exactly what they're doing. Um, which it is, definitely creates more passivity in the populace. It certainly mm. does. I mean, between xenoestrogens and fluoride, like you couldn't ask for a more passive combination than that. Yeah. And then not only that, but to know that the water you drink turns into your blood within five minutes. I mean, 
that's the only fact you need to know to understand that. You know, people used to say if you control a nation's food, you control the people, but it's obviously more true if you control their water, you control them. Fully. Totally. In fact, in Chinese, the symbol for control is the same as the symbol for water. Wow. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Oh, wow. There's so many different directions we can go in. Um, One more thing I would like to discuss regarding the differences in water is there seems to be a fad nowadays regarding alkaline water. And Mm -hmm. I am someone who, when I started to change the water I drank, one of my older brothers was a big influence uh, for me. And he actually bought a Kangen machine. And this was one of the most exciting times of our lives because we (laughs) really had so much faith into this machine. When I started drinking this water, I believe I did have a very deep positive effect. Um, Maybe some of that was placebo and maybe some of that was just having some further filtration of the New York tap water I was drinking. But after some years of drinking this water, I actually started to have an awareness that I wasn't feeling properly hydrated, no no matter how much I drank. And uh, I simply had this awareness and realization as well that all this water is still coming through all of these pipes that have right angles and are being cleansed at these, you know, treatment centers, such as you described. And then it's coming to my Kangen filter and it's alkalizing the water in this very mysterious way, which I didn't understand the science of how I was doing it. And something that's just told me to switch over to natural spring water, which I can source from uh, nearby my home or upstate New York, which I began doing. But years later, now I see so many companies, so many people who are trying to switch to a healthier version of water And they're just going into this alkalinity obsession, which from my studies, I've shown not to really be of that much benefit. I would love for you to speak on this um, controversial topic and uh, let us know what you think about it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Actually, you know, I was in a similar place um, when I first started getting into water as well, you know, I was on that, I was on that Kangen kick for a while. <laughs> um, it's definitely, it's the trend. And I think that in the short term, it can have some benefits, but those benefits are derived from the fact that these, these ionizing alkalizing machines actually create more hydrogen in the water. It's not because of the pH difference. Mm. Um, it's because the water has a higher hydrogen content. And we actually, over the long term, we see some negative effects from it. So, you know, alkaline water can be either really beneficial or really not, depending on what makes it alkaline. Mm. So um, typically what we're talking about here with these filters is basically reverse osmosis tap water that's been alkalized through an electrolysis process. And most people, again, most people do suffer from acidosis just due to diet and lifestyle and inflammation and dehydration and destructuring of our body water. So drinking more water in general, regardless of what kind it is, even if it's crappy bottled water, if it's you're drinking more and you're going from a place of being dehydrated, 
then any kind of water is going to be good for you. Your body needs it. Your body wants it. So yes, you're going to have a lot of beneficial effects, especially if you just paid $5,000 for a machine and you're like, <laughs> this is epic. I'm going to drink a ton of water every single day. Yep, yep. You're going to feel really good, you know, because you're just drinking more. Um, and it is good for our bodies to get a little bit more towards the alkaline side of the spectrum for healing, but only temporarily because alkalosis is just as dangerous as acidosis. And once you feel any ailments that might be created or exacerbated by acidosis, you really want to maintain a neutral pH in your body. Your blood is meant to be very, very neutral, you know, right around seven, or if, if you're a blood type, oh, even just tiny little bit acidic. And what most people don't realize is when you jump from, okay, so just to give like a background for people like the acid base um, scale is from one to 14. And so when we say seven, that means neutral. That means neither, um, neither acidic nor alkaline. Yes. So, um, what most people don't realize, I think is, is that when you jump from a seven to an eight, that's not just a one point difference. <laughs> that's what you're measuring is many order is a whole orders of magnitude, right? Between each one. So if you're drinking a nine, water or a 10 water like that's way way too alkaline like yeah. it's not just two points difference it's orders of magnitude difference so really there are a few different ways that you can make alkaline water you can make it really easily at home just by adding some baking soda or you can use one of these electrolysis machines right so um the ionizers, though, they produce this really unnatural alkaline water by electrocuting the water molecule to split it in half, and that separates the hydrogen and the oxygen. And we have to remember, whatever we do to our water, we do to ourselves. Whatever we do to our water, we do to ourselves. It's so true on every scale of the spectrum from the micro to the macro. And so we don't want to feel electrocuted. Mm. So we don't want to do that to our, to our water either. And then, um, the, the, um, this second method with the, with the alkalizing ionizing machine, it produces water that contains hydrogen gas because you're splitting the H2 from the O right now. Interestingly, you don't receive the same health benefits from drinking baking soda water, which is alkaline that you would receive from drinking the electrically alkalized water. If it were just a matter of pH, then the benefits should be the same either way, mm, baking soda yeah. water or electrically alkalized water, right? And again, you do see short-term beneficial health effects. You know, these, these um, sales representatives out there, they can show you some amazing studies and those studies are true, but I, I invite people, you know, do your own research. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to the, the sales reps. Do your own research and look for long-term human studies, of people using these alkalizing ionizers, you can have a really hard time finding them. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why the, the short-term benefits happen are because the second contains so much hydrogen. And even some of the original researchers who were involved in, um, in creating and promoting these ionizers way back in the beginning in Japan, they've actually shifted their entire careers now and shifted away from the alkaline movement. And now they just focus on, on hydrogen water. Mm. Um, so I think that's really telling <laughs> in a way. 
Um, but it can actually cause damage over time to be drinking this water because your body has to go through this really um, energy intensive process. Again, like you said, water becomes your blood within five minutes of drinking it. And so if your body has to continually bring down a pH from nine down to seven, every time you drink water over the years, it's going to get less efficient at doing that. And if you look at live blood analysis of people who have been drinking this kind of water over the long term, they have a preponderance of ruptured cells. So their cells actually can't stand being in too high of an alkaline environment and they rupture. And <clears throat> excuse me, you know, you need you need certain parts of your body to be really acidic. You yeah. know, you need your gut to be super acidic. That's why we have um, acidophilus, you know, it's, it's literally acidophile acid loving bacteria. We need a lot of that. We need very strong hydrochloric acid in our stomachs or HCL. Um, and the more we create a, a more alkaline environment in our stomachs, we um, can develop things like H. pylori, for example, um, which contributes to ulcers. I know a lot of people who've been drinking this water and they just feel bloated all the time and they mm. can't quite figure out why they feel so bloated. Yep. And I'm like, babe, it's the water that you're drinking. I'm like, no, 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 the best water. My, my sales rep told me so. <laughs> mm, yep. So, and it's not structured. It doesn't structure the water either. It actually does exactly the opposite. It's so, it's so funny to hear some of these reps talk about, oh, you know, it mimics nature and, hmm. and, um, you know, Kangen actually means from the source. And yet it's like, okay, so why don't you actually go to the source exactly. to get your water? Like go to a spring, go to the source. But, uh, you know, they say, yeah, it's, it's structured crystalline water and, and the process of electrolysis rips the hydrogens apart it's that's the whole point of hydrologists of electrolysis is it rips the hydrogens apart and mm. all of the structure has to do with the hydrogen bonding with how they come together and so by definition it does not create structured water and yeah there's it's a whole rabbit hole it's definitely yeah. a whole rabbit hole but i encourage people to really look into it and don't fall for the hype and you know we don't need to be commodifying water we don't need to be paying um $5,000 for a filter that doesn't structure, it doesn't mineralize, it doesn't, there are some great filters out there and some of them are quite pricey, you know, they last a lifetime and they really create super high quality water. So I do think it's, it's good to invest in your water for sure, but we just need to be um, conscientious about how we do it. Yes, completely. This is a perfect segue into the topic of the commodification of water mm -hmm. and how these privatized companies work to not only make a profit off of water, but to literally make a, a killing. You know, there are people mm -hmm. who are really suffering from what these companies oh are doing. I would love for you to just simply explain the horrors of privatized water and not only how it's affecting the planet but how it's affecting us on every single facet of our humanity and existence oh it's just such a big topic i'm so 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 glad you asked it because um i think this is one of the most important aspects of water that we all have to wake up to right now it's it's really crucial um but you know we could do a whole podcast episode just on this alone <laughs> yes. um at first, I, I want to set the stage for people um, just to understand the current state of water in our world, because it's really easy for us in the first world to be unaware of the global water apartheid that exists between the global north and the global south. 
right now, as we speak, one in every three human beings has no consistent access to clean drinking water. One in three. Wow. And by 2050, that's only 29 years from now, right? It's estimated to be one in two. So half of the population without clean drinking water in 30 years. And according to the World Health Organization, 80% of disease worldwide is caused by unclean drinking water. 80%. Now, hopefully by now, the little glimpse of our, our past conversation, you can see that you know, the other 20% of disease can also be traced back to the state of our body waters and water metabolism disturbance. But mm. for now, let's just say 80% of disease worldwide is caused by people not having access to clean drinking water. Now, this is absolutely something that we could easily fix if we put even a fraction as much energy into solving this crisis as we've put into um, tangling the corona crisis. Yes. But uh, right now, every eight seconds, a child dies from drinking dirty water. So since we started this podcast, I don't know how many kids that is, but probably in the hundreds. Wow. And in the third world, 90% of sewage is just discharged untreated into rivers and streams and coastal waters. In China, 80% of the major rivers are so degraded that they can no longer support life. 80% of the rivers, no fish can even live in them anymore. It's dismal. So not only have things been so polluted to this point, but as a result of this poor treatment, water is disappearing. She's withdrawing, um, which is predictable, of course, right? So Mm -hmm. every year, a new desert the size of Rhode Island is created in China. And drought-related sandstorms are plaguing the country. You know, California and Arizona are already out of water. New Mexico will run out in the next four years or so. Like, just all over the world, the planet is super dehydrated. Drought and desertification are just taking over. They're literally killing and inflaming our, our Earth. So we have to ask ourselves, why is this? Why? How did we let it get to this point? And it's despicable, but the simple answer is supply and demand because we have a capitalistic paradigm. And if the source of life is privatized as a source of profit, then the more scarce it becomes, the more wealthy its owners are, the more valuable their limited clean water assets become. Because unlike oil or anything else, of course, water is the source of life. So if you control a source of life, like you mentioned before, then you control the lives of all of those who need it every single day. It's the most powerful substance on earth. And it's literally being used as a weapon of war in many places, including the Middle East. Mm. It's being used as a tool of war. And, you know, most people don't realize that there are already water wars being fought all over the world. You know, the, the um, World Bank president was a president or vice president um either i forget but um one of the leaders of the world bank he said if the wars of the 20th century were fought over oil the wars of the 21st century will be fought over water and that's already happening now of course in the media it's played out to be um oh yeah this is a religious conflict Mm. or you know this is a, a migratory conflict or whatever it is but if you look deeper into the into the um, the into the roots of it, you'll see that 
in almost every case, it's about water resources and, um, and drought and desertification and people having to migrate and people stepping on each other's toes um, because of that. You know, right now in India, there are places that are so water poor that farmers have to go into their fields armed with axes against one another, against their neighbors, just to fight over the limited, very um, low wells access to the mm. access to the wells that are, are running low. So it's really intense because so many poor countries, they have to export huge amounts of virtual water because they desperately need money because they've been forced, often blackmailed by economic hitmen and the World Bank and the IMF to pay off their debts through monoculture crop exports, which waste huge amounts of water. So when we're talking about virtual water, we're not talking about they're actually exporting their liquid water, but they have to pour so much water into the creation of certain products or yes. certain crops that they have no water left for their own people anymore. Um, they end up using all of their remaining water supplies, not to give to their people, but to create whatever the World Bank or the IMF deems to be profitable from their country, just so they can try to dig themselves out of a debt that they will never get out from under very purposefully, you know, mm -hmm. even if it means that their own citizens are, are dying eight, every eight seconds, a child, you know. The World Bank is a murderous bully and it's forcing virtual water trade in countries where people are dying every day because of this lack of access to clean water. And it's because of consumer demand in first world countries like ours, like the U.S. You know, economics are not just dry numbers. They're, they're people's lives. Mm. There was... Um, there was a meeting of... I think it was a World Bank meeting. And um, there was a big protest... I want to say it was in Vietnam. Oh, I should get my details right before I tell the story. No problem. Um, there was a protest somewhere. There was a protest against, um, against these economic policies that the World Bank was coming up with. And um, there was a farmer who climbed on top of the fence in between where the meeting was being held and where the protests were. And he was wearing a sign that says the world bank kills farmers and he took his own life right there on top of the fence because there was no water. There was not enough water for the farmers. There's not enough water for anyone. And it was a direct result of the policies that these men in suits and boardrooms were making on behalf of first world countries like ours. I mean, what more powerful and resounding message could he hope to send to the world? And yet we haven't heard of him. Mm. You know, there are, there are people, there are activists and guardians who are giving their lives every single day to protect this precious commodity and that we just completely take for granted. And so we have to, to think, okay, well, the UN and the World Bank and the IMF, actually, you know, maybe it was a protest against the IMF. I'm sorry. It was. Mm. It wasn't the. It wasn't the World Bank. It was a protest against the IMF. His yes. signs that IMF kills farmers. Anyway, the the point remains. Um, yes. So you so you have to wonder, like, okay, what is their um, what's their skin in the game here? Why do they keep making policies like this that are so destructive? And it has to do with the water cartel that you mentioned. 
you know, the most powerful cartel in the world. They're not, it's not a drug cartel. It's not an arms cartel. It's a water cartel. Suez, Veolia, Bechtel, RWE Thames, and all of their subsidiary companies, they basically bought up water rights all over the world. And this has been happening since the 80s, since um, since the Reagan-Thatcher economics era. Um, you know, back then, no one would have imagined that water would be traded like shares on the stock exchange. Back then, no one could imagine paying more for water than we pay for gasoline. Mm. And yet that's where we find ourselves now. And right now, as a result, all over the world, if you can afford to pay for water, then you have the right to live. If you cannot afford to pay for water, then you have the right to die of thirst or waterborne disease. And that's just how it is right now. And when we talk about paying for water, I think in the first world, we, we say, oh, well, okay, so get a job. Water's cheap. But because of this water cartel, certain places in the world where it's been privatized, you know, there's no, there's no incentive for them to bring water or, or make water infrastructure available to places who can't afford to pay top dollar for it. Mm. So, you know, People might be paying, um, I've heard stories, I forget exactly which country it comes from, but I've heard stories of people paying half of their monthly income just for water. Wow. You really can't, you really can't uh, do that. And in places where, where they can't even afford to do that. I mean, a lot of the, the, um, the videos and the images that we see of women, walking with gallons on their head in Africa, you know, sometimes miles to go down to the watering hole to get dirty water to bring back to their village. Sometimes that village has a well. It's not that there isn't the infrastructure there. It's who owns that infrastructure and what are they charging for it? Mm. You know, there's a story of a village in Africa where you have to, to pay to turn on the pump, right? You have to faucet mm-hmm. and a house was burning down and there was water right there because they were right next door but the neighbors couldn't afford to get water to put the house out and two little girls died inside and that's the state of water in the world right now we can no longer afford to be blind to this um wow it's you know, if familiar with the term economic hitman, then I really recommend reading a book by that, by that title. Uh, Yeah, I think it's called economic hitman, but it basically explains the way that blackmail works on the global stage. Um, And, you know, any country that stands up for their citizens' right to water, they try to make it a public utility, then the economic hitmen come in. And if the economic hitmen can't blackmail them sufficiently, then the country is painted out to be socialist and the U.S. will end up backing a coup to overthrow that government. It's happened so many times in Latin America and South America now. So it's really, really hard for leaders of small countries to stand up to the international water, to this international water cartel. I'm not sure where that stands now, but for many decades, they were trying to, to um, make water a public commodity and they just were not able to. So yeah, I really think water privatization is the most important question of our lifetime because, well, water privatization and, and transhumanism, I would say, are yes. the most important questions. 
Rivers of Arlac. And, um, because again, there are already water wars being fought and right now is the turning point. Right now is the deciding factor. Our generation is the deciding factor as to whether or not future generations will have a right to life or whether life is just something to be bought and sold like Coca-Cola. You know, we have to be super involved in this. We have to be super involved. So I don't want to just bum people out without giving them like some some resources or some ideas for what direction to go and how they can get involved and how they can help. Yes. This is my um, exact next question so, because, uh, this, okay. this, this is, um, this is just so terrifying to say the least. And, uh, it, it brings such a heavy heart to my being just hearing some of the stories you're sharing and, uh, being aware of some of the research I've done on this. And it can feel very doom and gloomy when you mm -hmm. look at this stark reality, but it is absolutely necessary that we face the reality of this crisis, of this greed that we are dealing with. And I want to segue into how learning from our indigenous brothers and teachers learning their wisdom, their teachings surrounding how to work and pray and be with this water can assist us in changing our relationship to this water because that's essentially what you're describing we need to do more than anything is shift our perspective and form a different relationship with this water into a relationship that is conscious, that is grateful, and that is loving. And before we segue into some of these ancient traditional teachings, I'd love for you to shed some light on some organizations right now who are doing great work to protect water and to fight some of these water cartels that you are describing here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, there are so many organizations doing really, really great work. Um, I want to invite people not to get caught in the illusion um, of thinking that raising awareness and sharing information alone is actual activism. I think that we get caught in this cycle of like, oh, let me repost this and I'm making a difference. Yep. And it's a false sense of, of helping. Um, but there's, there's a beautiful side to that because the truth is like, as hopeless as we can sometimes feel in the face of these massive issues, the more we take action, the less hopeless we feel. There's a direct correlation. Like the more we get involved, the more hopeful we feel, the more we feel we have efficacy, the more we feel, you know, if, if you've been depressed because of everything that's going on in the world, the most surefire way to get yourself out of that slump is to take action, is really to take actionable steps. And raising awareness can be a part of that. But please be aware that that needs to just be one, one fraction of, of your, um, of your strategy. And so I recommend everyone whipping out their pens and pencils now taking notes on this part, um, and really crafting a strategy for yourself, do a bit of research, you know, draw up a plan for yourself, say, you know, I really resonate with, with these, um, initiatives more so than these. And here are the ways that I feel that I can be involved and, you know, really come up with like, um, even if it's just one hour per week, you know, or a few hours per week, a lot of us, you know, due to the, um, 
corona restrictions right now, the medical tyranny that's happening. We can't necessarily get out and do the volunteer work that we would normally do. Um, but there are so many other ways to do it. So so this is really my my prayer and my invitation for you. And there are some of you who are going to take up this charge. And I just, I really commend you and I really celebrate you. And, and I really want to honor you and acknowledge you in advance for that. Yes. Um, so a good place to start. And um, again, this is not activism. <laughs> this is just informing yourself, but it's a good place to start is reading Maud Barlow's work. Maud Barlow is an incredible, incredible activist in the water movement. Um, Blue Future is one of her most recent books. Blue Gold is probably the most famous. That one was actually turned into a documentary. Um, so you could even invite your family over to watch Blue Gold or Last Call at the Oasis or um, Cadillac Desert. Actually, I can't remember if Cadillac Desert is a book or a movie. It's definitely a book. I don't remember if they turned it into a movie. Anyways, start with those. You can also get involved with your local watershed association. It's really important to get to know your own watershed. Just like you know your address, you should know your watershed as well because we can't protect what we don't know. Mm. Um, and you can support nonprofits like the Waterkeepers Alliance that's uh, run by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, and the Blue Planet Project, that one's run by Maud Barlow. Um, those two, I think on the global stage are doing the best work right now of, from what I've seen. Um, there are also a couple of initiatives that are working on giving rights to bodies of water. Mm. So you can get involved with the Earth Law Center and the rightsofnature.org. And they're lit literally giving rivers and lakes um, human rights in a way. Yes. So um, right now in the U.S., there are about 90 pipelines, just like the Keystone uh, Dakota Access Pipeline that are being installed. And it's really important to get involved with that because they are not getting the press that they received in North Dakota. You know, it was, it was politically convenient at the time to have a big distraction and they, they wanted to see, and I'm sorry if I'm, it sounds a little bit conspiracy right now, but they wanted to see uh, who would get involved, who the activists were, what the strategies would be like for something like that. So, so it was allowed to become this massive thing that caught a lot of media attention. Mm. They're not going to let that happen again. Um, but 90 other projects just like that are happening. So you can find out where those are, get involved locally. Um, also I'm involved with a project that is calling for a world water law, which would set water as a really a unified global priority. And you can get involved with that and find out more at codes.earth slash water law. But, you know, even more important than all of that, I think the absolute most important thing that we could possibly do to restore water is as you as you said it comes down to the indigenous people you know they're the ones on the front lines um who are fighting this manifest destiny that is still alive and well yes you know, their water is being taken from them their water is being polluted and they're they're really at the front lines of it um so the most important thing we can do and this is not as radical as it sounds when you think about the whole course of of the history of the earth and human history, but we need to restore the rights and the land and the power and the respect to indigenous people. And I want to highlight the land. We need to restore the land to indigenous people, land back, get involved in the land back movement. They are the rightful stewards of the earth and healing from capitalism means decolonizing our minds, decolonizing our relationships and giving back what was stolen because nothing stolen can flourish. 
our lands and our waters will never flourish until they are restored. They cannot flourish as long as they're stolen and there's no justice. So get involved with projects like Survival International is one of my favorite indigenous um, rights advocacy groups. They actually work mostly with uncontacted indigenous tribes or uh, tribes that are still living their traditional life ways around the world. Amazing. But just get involved with whatever your local indigenous activist groups are, because really that's our most precious um, human resource, I think. So, yeah, as as you said, um, not just not just restoring the land um, and getting involved with their organizations, but also really um, becoming disciples of their wisdom and really um, humbling ourselves to to learn from their teachings um, and letting the indigenous people guide the way, guide our activism, guide our our steps, um, yes. and guide our relationship with water. Because I think we forget that we are indigenous. You know, we've become the the aborigines call modern civilized humans mutants, mm. and it's true in a way. We have become mutants because we're no longer um, fit to survive in our own natural habitat anymore. Um, yes, and yet we are each back in our ancestry, not even that far ago. Um, we have countless, countless indigenous ancestors that are speaking through our DNA. You know, Victor Schauberger said that drinking the highest quality water gave him direct access to his ancestral wisdom. And at that time in the late 1800s, they hadn't discovered DNA yet. So he didn't really have the, the um, scientific way of understanding that, but that was his direct personal experience. And now we know that your DNA is actually held in its chiral structure by a very strong, um, backbone of highly, highly structured icosahedral collathrate water molecules. And that the more structured that water is, the more perfect um, and tightly bound your double helix are entwined. And so the health of your DNA and and your DNA does act as an antenna on some level. Mm. Our ability to tap into that ancestral wisdom is directly proportional to the health of our body waters. So we want to tap into our own ancestral history, our own indigeneity, and really, as you said, cultivate that relationship. I love that you love that you use the word relationship because that's what it all comes down to. You know, each one of us is in a relationship with water, whether we realize it or not. And every thriving relationship in our lives, whether it's our romantic relationships or our friendships or our family or whatever. It takes time and care and attention and conscientiousness. This is why it's not enough to just relegate water to convenience. Yes. You know, it really takes stewarding. It takes stewarding. And in indigenous traditions um, all over the world, this was really more so um, in, in most cultures, it was more so a role of the feminine to steward water. Women in nearly every indigenous culture, there are so many water songs, water medicine songs yes. um, that women would sing. And of course, everyone can sing them. Men, women, you know, child, trans, LGBT, everything. Everybody sing to water. Let's, let's steward this relationship. Um, there's so many beautiful water medicine songs and water really responds to the human voice in, uh, in a really beautiful way. Um, you can see in in cymatics the way that water actually dances. Yeah, it's sound. That's so beautiful so, when when you get to see those patterns because we know mm-hmm. we know you know us who are spiritually aware know the change that is being done when 
this sound moves through this water. But to see some of those patterns, I'll, I'll link some YouTube videos uh, on this podcast for some people to see if they've never seen them before. But it is so beautiful to see that reaction. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's what's happening on a molecular level in our own bodies. Yes. As well, all yes. the time. Mm, yeah. I would love to. So it's really about. Go ahead. Mm, thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for all of those resources you just shared with us. Um, I would love to. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Can I share one more resource? P- please. Before I forget. You're very it's welcome. It's actually, it's the, most, it's the most important one. Please, please. <laughs> of the whole podcast. Even if everybody tunes out everything else, you can forget <laughs> everything else. This is the most important one. I can't believe I forgot to mention it. Okay. So I recommend everyone go to findaspring.com uh, to find your local spring. Yes. That's the thank most you. important thing. Thank you. I wanted find to bring that up myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or you can use Gaia GPS, um, which also has maps of springs, or check out your local geological survey to find your springs, or just ask the elders in your area where the springs are. Those are like the four main. Usually, findaspring.com will have one that's near you. No matter where you are, you might be shocked at how prevalent they are. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely get to know your local springs. Mm, beautiful. And that um, website is. Uh, open to the community. There's comments under each spring. It's amazing. Some people actually show the test results of the water uh, under that spring that they are commenting on. And uh, that has been an invaluable resource to me as well. So findaspring.com, correct? Yes. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that reminder. Um, Yeah, I would love as we begin to wrap up to speak about the power and true effect that prayer and human emotion has on water. And I can give all the credit to my medicine men and medicine women family who I engage in ceremonial work with down in Ecuador for really showing me how much time and how much intention you could put into praying and blessing your water. And uh, this is something that all of our ancestors have done for millennia. Simply, I believe it used to not only even have to be a ceremony. It was just a way of living, of being grateful for this water. Mm -hmm. But for me to go down this path of ceremonial work, and engaging in different plant medicines and ceremonies of all sorts. And to see that in every ceremony, there is a moment where we consciously take some time to extend our appreciation, our gratitude for this source of life and to bless it, to realize how much of an important element it truly is, was the foremost thing that shifted my relationship to water. So I would love for you to maybe share how this understanding of ceremony and some of these creation myths that include water and some of these esoteric indigenous ancient teachings that you have acquired over your research, uh, how understanding the spiritual aspect and the importance of awareness behind this water has impacted you and uh, maybe share some of that information with all of us. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, it's so beautiful. It's so, and I love the way you describe it because it really is a transformative practice. 
Mm. And it really is so ubiquitous throughout every ceremony you ever go to, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no matter where it is, it's a part of every ceremony. Yeah. You know, even in the Western world. Yeah, even the mundane ones, you know, of, in weddings and baptisms and, you know, bar mitzvahs, everything. Totally. Yep. Mm hmm. It's yeah, even just praying before meals, you know, you're you're affecting the molecular structure of the water and your food. It's it's such a vital part of every aspect of spiritual life from birth until death. And um and really the power of prayer itself is predicated upon the fact that the ninety-nine point nine perf nine five, well, they say ninety-nine point nine two to ninety-nine point nine five percent, but basically hundred percent of the molecules in your body are water molecules. And because they are able to act as resonators to resonate with the frequency of your prayer, because they're able to act like amplifiers to amplify the frequency of your prayer and intention. And because water, like we talked about in the very beginning, is so connected to the quantum field, it's actually in every single religion, cross-culturally, get deeper into the mystery teachings, <clears throat> excuse me, and the way that they use water in all of their different ceremonies. And you can see that they use it as a mediator of prayer, as a mediator between the human and the heavenly, between the manifest and the unmanifest, between the mundane and the divine. It really is like the, the point of communion in between. And because we're made of this water, it resonates and amplifies our prayers so much you know there was a researcher in russia named dr korakov and he was doing some research on water to show how it would respond to different stimuli and he basically showed that while yes it is sensitive to everything it picks up and reads and responds to everything it's most sensitive to human emotion mm. it's most curious about what we're feeling and so thinking a prayer is great. Thinking the word love, putting the word love on your bottle of water, sure, knock yourself out. But if you're feeling love or you're feeling gratitude or you're feeling focus or you're feeling, you know, whatever that medicine is that you want to bring in acceptance or um, motivation or, or whatever it is, um, when you work with your water, feeling that the water will reflect it back to you. Mm -hmm. um, so if you put the word love on your bottle of water, but you're feeling um, frenzied or stressed, yeah. the water is going to respond more to that for sure. Completely. Um, yeah, so it's this, okay. this, yes. this transference of intention, feeling, not just mere um, labeling is, is the power yes. of, of how this water responds to human emotion. Yes and no. So epitaxy or transference mostly just refers to um, when you have one substance that is highly coherent, one substance that's already in its crystalline phase, whether that's crystalline phase water or an actual crystal, or in the case of some very rare kinds of glass, the, the glass itself can be structured in a matrix and then that will lend more coherence to anything in its field. So mm. if you put bulk water near or inside of structured water because of epitaxy and transference, that structured water will lend more coherence and will, will uplift the bulk water into a higher state of, of crystallinity. I see. So that's more when you're talking about like physical things, but when you're talking about, um, 
more of the the energetic aspect of things, um, it operates on more of uh, this principle of quantum coherence. Mm. So coherence is the ability of anything that is um, that comes together in a certain way to act as one cohesive unit. So for example, if you have a fabric, it's woven of thousands of different threads, but because they come together with a particular structure, the fabric has coherence and it's able to act all together as one unit, one piece of fabric. Um, And that's what happens when the water molecules come together with a certain pattern, then that entire body of water acts cohesively as one unit. And then the quantum aspect of quantum coherence means that it's able to, um, quantum is like anything that happens faster than the speed of light. You yes. know, the, the speed of light is the fastest speed possible here in the third dimension. So when we're talking about something that happens faster than the speed of light, you're talking about something that pierces into another dimension. <laughs> um, so on that quantum scale, that quantum phase, And so when you um, imprint love, intention, frequency, vibration, prayer into water, it's able to conduct that with quantum coherence Mm. uh, faster than the speed of light. And it's interesting because when we look at um, the quantum phase of water and some of the research that's coming out about it, we're seeing that it's echoing what a lot of indigenous people um, taught us about water you know, about water being this, for example, in many indigenous traditions, they say that um, lakes, for example, are portals to other realms. And in particular, the point where the water first emerges from from the spring, from the source of the spring, they consider that to be a portal. In fact, right here in Bali, where I'm living, there's, um, you know, even before Hinduism came to Bali, it was the land of Agamatirta, which is the water religion. So the oldest indigenous practice way before Hinduism got here was that they revered water. Mm, wow. And um, they have some of the most elaborate and beautiful water traditions and water temples and water ceremonies. And I was talking to one of the water priests here um, about yeah, just kind of the the history with that and how it's changed over time. And and they just have some amazing stories. He was saying, oh yeah, you know, right here at this one that, that we were visiting this little temple, it wasn't even one of the major temples. It was just, there are just little water temples everywhere at every single spring. And he was like, yeah, you know, there was a priest who was living here two generations ago who um, they said he had a family in the other world and he would go through the spring to visit them. So he had a family here on this side. He had a family there on that side. He would just go in and out through the springs and visit them. And then I was talking to another uh, water priest here who was saying, because typically it's a lot of times it's passed down generationally in the lineage through their family. And he was like, yeah, you know, my grandfather was able to walk on water. And everyone, you know, everyone in the village had seen it and it was just kind of normal. It was just kind of par for the course. And he didn't use the term par for the course. Obviously we were in, in translation, (laughs) but you know, um, so yeah, there's, there's some incredible, miraculous, miraculous capabilities of water. I mean, you look at all of the major religions, like you could write whole books just on the role of water in Christianity alone. I mean, look at the very first lines of Genesis, the very first thing they thought most important to say before anything else was in the beginning, there was nothing. And then God moved over the face of the waters and God's 
firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters above from the waters below. So in the very first sentence, you say the word water like 20 times. Yeah. And you know that in the beginning, there was nothing except God and water. And God and water are so intimately connected. And the process of creation is such a process of water that in every origin story that you look at, like I've, I've studied so many origin stories. I've yet to find a single one that doesn't involve water. Even if they use the names of different gods as the creator gods, you look and you see that in this pantheon, that's the God of water, (laughs) like every single time, you know? Um, Amazing. So this role of water in creation is, is really fascinating, especially considering that creation isn't something that just happened once a long time ago. Creation is a continuous process of emerging. And when we ally with water, we're also allying with that process of creation and emergence and divinity. Mm, Yes, completely. I, um, you know, having this conversation and being the, the nerd I am of wanting to understand the science, I can sometimes hear some of my indigenous, uh, brothers and sisters telling me, uh, no need to complicate all of this. Simply drink water from the planet and bless it and pray over it and appreciate it for what it is. And um, that for me has given me a foundation of implementing some ceremonial practices into my daily life in which I simply extend gratitude to my water. And uh, after, of course, making sure that I'm drinking the highest quality water I can find. And I would love to hear if you have any practices you conduct in yourself, even if it's nothing elaborate, um, but what your process of giving thanks to water looks like. And if you have any recommendations for people who may be listening of how they can enact a mini ceremony, it could be one minute or five minutes of uh, transferring this deep human emotion of gratitude to water. I love that you're asking this. I'm actually in collaboration with a woman right now. We're coming up with a, she's with a ceremony that, that people can use. Um, but of course, anything and everything works. Like the most important thing is just your love and your intention and, and your presence and your, your intention to steward that relationship. And it opens up over time. The more you tend to this relationship, the more it just opens up. And eventually water will tell you exactly what she wants from you, exactly how she wants to be loved, exactly yes. how she wants to be cared for on a daily basis. I love that you mentioned that you make sure it's the highest quality water first, because before I go into specific examples, I, I do want people to recognize that the ability of water to imprint the vibration of your prayer is directly proportional to the strength of its crystalline matrix. So you want to make sure that it's structured first, or you can do it as part of the structuring process. So one of my favorite things to do personally is to vortex my water because it's one of the best ways to not only bring structure to it, um, but also to aerate it with different gases. And, um, and it just brings her alive. She loves to move. Water loves to move. She loves to play in nature. She's always moving. So um, vortexing water is a really great way. And a researcher named Theodore Schwenk showed that movement opens water even more so as a sensory organ. In other words, she's most sensitive when she's moving. So when you do your prayers, it can be a good idea to either be vortexing or stirring while you're doing the prayers. Um, 
personally, I collect water songs from different cultures around the world. So I love to sing these different songs to my water, but you know, you don't have to be a singer. You don't have to have a particular song. It can even just be something simple like, just humming to your water, just Mm. creating this vibrational connection to your water, whatever comes to you in the moment, maybe some lyrics will come to you in the moment. Maybe it's just something as simple as thank you, just water. Thank you. Um, but to just take that time to really be present with it. And it's the presence and the communion that really goes a long way. And I absolutely, absolutely, I think the most important um, communion that we can have and the most important ritual that we can undertake is going to our local springs. So of course, you know, sing and love and pray and dance with your drinking water every day. Um, but at least once a month, you know, maybe on the full moons when the springs flow the fastest. Um, really, even if it takes an hour or two to drive there, who doesn't drive an hour or two to go to the airport? We're talking yeah. about a pilgrimage to the source of life. And it is absolutely worth it to go there and to have a little ceremony and to watch the body of life being born from the earth and to give offerings. This is another one of the most common aspects of ceremony in indigenous traditions, the Kogi of Colombia, who um, really steward water just so beautifully in, in probably the most beautiful ways um, that I've seen being, being shared. Yeah. Um, they, they call it pagamento. It was literally the rent that we pay to water mm. for getting to steward this body of water. You know, we, we get to carry around a drop of water for one lifetime in between it being a part of the watershed. You yes. know, as soon as we are put back in the earth, this water goes right back into the watershed again. And so we want to connect with our watershed and, and give payments, give pagamento, give offerings. And this can be this can be anything. I do recommend that if it is something physical, that it be something very natural. Yes. Um, you know, give a, give a feather, give a crystal. Don't give like a, something plastic, obviously. I feel <laughs> like I don't need to tell people that, but yeah. maybe it's important because actually in, in Peru, so they, they also give offerings there. They give offerings everywhere there. They call it gazpacho. And when you give a gazpacho, um, you know, you actually make this beautiful, um, you kind of lay it out on a fabric and it's considered that that fabric is is the universe. It's a representation, a holographic representation of the universe. And so, as you're you're laying down, you know, beans or sugar or uh, cacao beans or um, sand or whatever it is you're you're making, you're drawing this beautiful mandala, and then you might um, fold that up, you know. And as you lay down each thing, you're you're giving a prayer for it as well. And as you take that to the water, you might let it go into a stream or let it go into the ocean. Um, but because that's such a part of the culture there, uh, you can buy gazpachos pre-made at these little um, these little shaman shops there. Yeah. And they have like plastic glitter and crap in them. <laughs> so it's I've like, seen uh, them firsthand myself. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know that Mama Water really wants that, but um, but yeah, that's some ideas for people to start to work with. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Just um, a little quick side note. The Kogi people have uh, an incredible movie online for free. You can watch called Aluna. I know you have, you have seen it. Um, mm-hmm. It has been one of my favorite movies over the years and you could see this beautiful, genuine relationship these people have with the water and their understanding that water is the essence of 
all life and the foundation of our existence. So that movie is amazing. I would love to forward people to that. I'm going to have so many links uh, underneath this podcast for people to check out. And um, just to wrap up, there has been so much great wisdom shared here. And I just want to personally thank you, Isabel, for doing everything you're doing and for truly dedicating your life to this subject because I truly don't think there's anything else that's more important. And it is an inspiration and an honor to see and to speak with somebody who is not focusing on anything else more than this very important topic. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And Mm, thank you so much. I received that. Thank you for those kind words. And Mm. thank you so much for inviting me on here and and bringing this out into the world and, and for, for your relationship with water, I can see the ways that, that you've really stewarded to that connection and you've really cultivated those ceremonies and you've really humbled yourself to the, to the practices and the indigenous ways. And you've, you've gone and studied and, and really Mm. woven this red road into your very bloodstream. And it just, it really resonates in your, in your energy and your presence. And, um, and I really honor you, brother. Thank you so much for, for who you are and for your medicine and for bringing this medicine forward. Mm, Thank you so much, sister. To end, I would like to quote one of my brothers from South America who told me something his, his partner said to him, and that was they were speaking about if all of the ceremonial work that they do is making a difference. And what she said to him was, and I'm paraphrasing, but what she said to him was, all these years, these 20 years of doing ceremony, if we haven't done anything but impact one person to change their relationship to water that would be enough yes just to change one person's mind or to cultivate one person's relationship to water in a good way would make all of this work worth it and uh i feel the same with this podcast even if it's just one Mm -hmm. person who we impact i am grateful for that so thank you sister so much Mm -hmm. thank you So one last thing, uh, Isabel, please let everybody know where we can find you online, where we can receive your teachings and speak about this upcoming course you have uh, being released this week, actually, at the point of this recording. Yeah, I would love to share. Thank you. Um, I have a website as watersLife.love. And um, I invite people to sign up for the newsletter. I respect your inbox. I don't inundate you. I actually um, mail things kind of rarely, but um, but you'll get some good quality info through there. I also have a Telegram channel, um, which is at Life Is Water, and you can find me on Instagram at Jen Isabel Friend. And um, you mentioned the Navigating the Waters e-course, which is all about drinking water. And I have a 20% off coupon for your listeners. If they want to hop on there, they just use the code, um, the code Masters of Ceremony. Beautiful. And I get 20% off Navigating the Waters. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, tomorrow, actually, we're, we're recording this on the 27th and tomorrow is the full moon. So the full moon, I'm so excited about this. I've been working on this for months. I'm releasing... Um, an e-course called Internal Oceans, which is all about our inner hydrology 
and our inner hydrological cycles and how they directly mirror the hydrology of the earth. And it goes deep, deep, deep into the science of wellness and health and really some of the cutting edge medical discoveries about our internal waters. And um, originally I designed it for um, nutritionists and health coaches and um, yeah, medical practitioners of all kinds, but really it's for everyone. Um, if you have a body of water and you want to really optimize it, um, then this is for you and it's dropping tomorrow. So I invite you to come check that out. Mm. Actually, by the time this releases, it probably will already be published. Yes, most definitely. You can find that at um, waterislife.teachable.com. Wow. Thank you so much, Isabel. And uh, I'm going to put all of these links in the description of this podcast. And thank you for all that you do. And I hope that we can do a podcast like this again sometime soon because I feel like we have only scratched the surface on this amazing topic. So I hope we can get that done. Yeah, sometime. I would love that. Beautiful. That'd be awesome. Yeah, so much more to chat about. Mm. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day and speak to you soon. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode with Isabel Friend. I'm feeling so nourished and so motivated to continue to share some of the teachings that we discussed in today's episode because, as you now heard, this is such an important topic. So I would really like to encourage you all to follow Isabel on all of her social medias and check out her website and her shop. And most importantly, take advantage of the offer that she provided here on this podcast that you can receive 20% off any of her amazing courses. You can find those at waterislife.teachable.com. And I'm not only promoting these courses because uh, she's told me they're great. I know, for example, how powerful they are as stated in the podcast. I've never taken so many notes listening to uh, YouTube lectures or any other e-course I've taken. So they're phenomenal and I want to push everyone towards uh, those resources and truly thank you all for listening to this podcast and supporting by liking it by sharing it by leaving a review all of these things really do make such a difference in getting this content out there so again thank you all have a beautiful week and see you next week